And one of them is Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah. And I would completely agree with him. If you look in tafsir books, you find his name there. If you look in hadith books, you find his name there. If you look in fiqh and masail books, you find his name there. And if you look at speech, he is a master. If you look at uh, the science of uh, tazkiyah and, uh, and uh, 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 purification, you find him high up in there as well. Great scholar, very pious. The second person he mentioned was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah. Again, another perfect individual. And the third person he mentions, which many of us may know, not know too much about, is Sufyan al-Thawri. He was a great muhaddith, but also a great ascetic and pious individual. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salamu ala sayyidil mursaleen. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran ila yawmiddin. Amma ba'd. قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القرآن المجيد والفرقان الحميد وأنتم الأعلون إن كنتم مؤمنين. My dear respected brothers and sisters, our dear friends, السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. The topic for the theme for today's conference, mashallah, is a very appropriate one. Alhamdulillah, all of our brothers and sisters have been before me have been speaking to you about relevant aspects of this topic. Uh, this particular topic that awake, uh, 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 the, the particular topic that we have today, there was a book that I worked on, and it took us about ten years to work on this book. It was a book by a very famous scholar, thinker, and polymath of the Indian subcontinent, whose name was Sheikh Abul Hassan Ali Al Nadwi, rahimahullah. Very interestingly, he died on the 31st of December, 1999, the last day of the millennium. He wrote a book called Tariq Da'wat Azimat, which was originally written in Urdu. It's a very analytical book. It was published in, uh, it was translated and published in Arabic, and then in English it was published as the Saviors of Islamic Spirit. The first volume of this book is what we worked on, and the reason is that when I read this book at the age of approximately uh, 18 or 20 or so, I wish I had read it before that. And the reason I wish I had read it before this is because, you know, we are living in this time in which it seems to be one of the lows of this ummah. Throughout our history, since the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, we have experienced the lows and then the highs, the pitfalls, the challenges. Then we've had the successes and the victories. So there's been a constant up and down, which is the nature of this world. Right now, Unfortunately, with the Muslim world, there's no Arab Spring out there, by the way, just to let you know, in case you haven't worked it out already. It's an Arab storm. It's a hurricane. It's, it's really bad, unfortunately. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bring some relief to the, our brothers and sisters in Syria and in all of the other countries in that region. It's a really a sad case. We are currently in a low. We're currently being challenged. The Muslim Ummah the monolithic Muslim Ummah of the world. Anybody who lives today and looks back just 20 years or 30 years, it's quite depressing for a lot of people. They think, why should I be a Muslim? What is there in being a Muslim? If you look back beyond that time though, and you look in our history to the great people that have been the saviors of this, of the Islamic spirit, the revivers of this Ummah, then you will notice that this is just a cycle. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Wallahu mutimmu nurih. Wallahu yutimmu nurahu. Allah will complete his light. Regardless of whether we're on the train or not. But Allah's train, Allah's nur, Allah's light will continue. When I read this book, it inspired me immensely. It filled me with optimism. It provided a much better perspective of world events. It wasn't a depressing outlook. It showed how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring about people, choose people, select people, guide people and divinely enable people to do certain things. It gave me a sense of understanding. I felt that if I had read this book when I was younger, it would have substantially increased and enhanced my awareness of my faith. It's history. And above all, the incredible people who have kept our deen aloft and high. It gave me an understanding of the hard work that service for Allah will entail. A person who's endowed, I mean, there will be people sitting here who have been endowed with particular qualities like a sound mind, intelligence. We have many, many intelligent brothers and sisters in our community, both young and old. We've got very, very intelligent people in our communities. Healthy physique and wealth. If Allah has given these things to people, but they do not use it and put it into service of others, then they have not thanked Allah for the gifts that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them. Allah requires from each one of us to do our part. I also learned that the true success lies in high aspiration, exertion, but abundant prayers. You can't just be exerting all along and not asking Allah. You have to be connected to Allah. To do something productive, we need Allah's assistance. We have to constantly interrogate our intentions. Are we doing what we're doing for the right reason? If I'm helping out with something, providing a service for someone, assisting people, what's my intention for doing so? And then we must also trust in Allah's plan for this world. Above all, it gave me a desire that I also want to be accepted for his service, as the great saviors of the past had been. I'm going to quickly go through some of the main people who are covered in this first volume of this book. So the book is here, it's called Saviors of Islamic Spirits. And the first volume of this deals with the first seven centuries of Islam, the ups and downs, how when we were at a very precarious, in a very precarious situation, very challenging point, and Allah suddenly brings up someone to assist in this regard. This is what this book is all about. It will just fill us with enthusiasm. So, the first person this book deals with is Hassan Basri. The second person it deals with is Umar ibn Abdul Aziz. It deals with Abu Hassan al-Ash'ari, Izzuddin ibn Abdul Salam, Abdul Qadir al-Jilani, Abu al-Faraj ibn al-Jawzi, Abu Hamid al-Ghazali, Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, and Nuruddin Zangi, of course, and it deals with the Tatars. Just to give you a quick synopsis in the short time that we have, in the Khalif Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, I see an individual who remained unblemished from the corruption that power and wealth often bring. All the while he maintained the trust to preserve the entire Muslim nation. Do you know that his reign only lasted just over two years? And he became a Khalif by accident. 
not by design, not by not not he was not in the line of be, being the Khalif. His cousin Sulaiman ibn Abdul Malik, on his deathbed, his children were too young. Somebody whispered into his ears that, "What about your cousin, who is the governor of Medina Munawwara?" He said, "Yes, of course, okay." Until then, Umar ibn Abdul Aziz was like a playboy. He wore the most expensive garments. You know, today, if you see me in this garment, then for Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, you would never see him again in this same garment again. He spent huge amounts of money on garments, clothing, and perfume. That's how he was. He was indulgent. But as soon as he became the Khalif, something overcame him. And he left all of this. His wife was the daughter of the previous Khalif, Abdul Malik ibn Marwan, the great Umayyad. He took, uh, he, he, in dis after discussing with her, they gave back all the jewelry that they had to the Baytul Mal. And then after that, he started his reform in an absolutely selfless manner. But we can tell by this that in his reign of just over two years, it demonstrated that a nation can be transformed if the guiding values are the honesty, fairness, selflessness, and God-fearingness. Then if we move to Shaykh Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah. Recently I was reading Ibn al-Jawzi in his Sayyid al-Khatir. Ibn al-Jawzi says that I took an assessment of all of the scholars before me because Ibn al-Jawzi, the great scholar of Baghdad, was a historian and a hadith scholar as well. Amazing Hanbali scholar. He said, I looked at all of the scholars of the past and I tried to find which ones were most perfect in knowledge, had mastered all of the sciences, but at the same time, while mastering the sciences, they had also achieved a very high level in piety, taqwa, and God-fearingness. Because a lot of the time, you have a lot of worshippers and ascetics, but they're not as masterful when it comes to knowledge and sciences. Sometimes you have great ulama, but they're not as great in their worship. So which of the three scholars, sorry, which of the few scholars had mastered both? And he said, after searching quite in depth with a full investigation, he said, I came up with three people. And one of them is Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah. And I would completely agree with him. If you look in tafsir books, you find his name there. If you look in hadith books, you find his name there. If you look in fiqh and masail books, you find his name there. And if you look at speech, he is a master. If you look at uh, the science of uh, tazkiyah and, uh, and uh, 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 purification, you find him high up in there as well. Great scholar, very pious. The second person he mentioned, was Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahimahullah. Again, another perfect individual. And the third person he mentions, which many of us may know, not know too much about, is Sufyan al-Thawri. He was a great muhaddith, but also a great ascetic and pious individual. I personally would add a number uh, of other people in there, like Abdullah ibn al-Mubarak, for example. But anyway, in the short time that we have, we have to move on. So Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah, he shows that a heart that is connected to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the benefit of being nurtured in a pious household because his mother was a servant of one of the Ummahatul Mu'mini, one of the wives of the Prophet And thus, it created for him, with his firm grounding in knowledge, his eloquence and his confidence, it gave him undeniable power to rectify the people. At that time, people had become a bit obsessed with the dunya. However, Hassan al-Basri, with his exhortations, his lectures, his bayans, he managed to keep people stable. Then we move on to the next person that is discussed is Imam Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari. Imam Abu al-Hassan al-Ash'ari, rahimahullah, he starts off as a Mu'tazili. 
Without going into any kind of depth as to what a Mu'tazili is, a Mu'tazili was a rationalist of the time who, whose rationalism sometimes forced them to deny certain narrations. They had certain principles that they made up, uh, they developed, and if certain hadiths went against that, then they would deny those. If certain Quranic verses went against it, they would reinterpret those. So it was a, a heresy, a sect, a sect. He was one of them. He was actually trained by one of its masters, one of its leading scholars. They thought he is going to be the next major leader and spokesperson. Allah gives him guidance. He suddenly comes out after 15 days and he goes on to the big mosque of Basra and he says, just the way I'm taking this garment off, this shawl off or whatever it was, he says, this is the same way I'm coming out of Mu'tazilism. And then he attacked them. And thus, through this, Allah tells us how Allah protects his faith by taking people from the very, from the very people that you would consider to be the enemies and thus turning them against and making them work for the benefit. I remember a few years ago when I was in the, uh, in the plain of Uhud, when you go for Medina Munawwara, you go to, the, they take you to Uhud, where the battle took place. And subhanAllah, one of the things that came to mind was that there were three people on the, on the enemy side on that day. Famous individuals. One was none other than Khalid bin Walid. He was fighting on, against the Muslims on that day. Another person was Amr ibn al-As, again, not a Muslim at the time. And the third person was the son of Abu Jahl, Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. I don't know what dua the Prophet made, but three of these people become Muslim afterwards. And then you know the story of Khalid bin Walid. You know the story, uh, story of Amr ibn al-As who conquers Egypt. And then there's Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. That is why we should make dua. Everybody's frightened of Trump. And maybe they've got a reason to be, uh, to, to be frightened. Make dua for him. Don't stop cursing people. Make dua for people. And you don't know the power of Allah and, his du uh, and our duas to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah could suddenly turn people around. And it'd be a whole different thing. And Uhud is a lesson like this. Three of the biggest enemies a few years later come into Islam subhanallah. And then they assist. Then we move on to the, 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 the next individual. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, his story is long. However, again, just a synopsis, a pioneering sage, suffering at the, hand, at the hands of his, these same Mu'tazilis. They had now effected Ma'mun al-Rashid, the the, uh, the, who was the Khalif of the time. He had Imam Ahmad whipped because he would not agree with one of their false ideas. I don't want to go into what the ideas were, but he refused. Many of the other scholars, they changed, they, they said outwardly what they didn't believe inwardly just to be safe. But Imam Ahmad, he, Ibn Hanbal rahimahullah, he stood, he stood firm. He was whipped, he was punished, but still it gave him a lot more respect because eventually that whole Mu'tazilism collapsed after his time. We learn, uh, we learn from him that when you have scholarship, it comes with great responsibility. The general masses' fervent reliance on the scholars is understood from because the scholars, they were looking at Imam Ahmad. If he had fallen on that day, then many, many people would have been, become corrupt. That is why if scholars become corrupt, they will corrupt a lot of people. And may Allah protect us from that. However, we also understand that when you have a pious and sincere scholar, even the non-Muslims will pray for that person. And that is why on so many occasions with Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, 
He was told that we were in such and such a place. We met some Christians and they prayed for you. They said he's a man who brings about mercy and peace. And amazing how you have non-Muslims who are giving credence to what, you, to what you do. However, probably one of the most inspiring for me accounts was no doubt that of Imam Abu Hamid Al-Ghazali. He is the reviver, the mujaddid of the 5th century. He was born in 450 and he died in 505, only 55 when he died. What his story tells us is that he had abandoned one of the most prestigious posts of the entire Muslim lands, which was in the Nidhamiya College. It's like somebody becomes the head of Oxford or Cambridge, Harvard or Yale, and then suddenly he leaves that purely to look for Allah, purely to connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's what he did. People thought he was crazy. He left for 11 years. He went to Makkah Mukarramah and Medina Munawwara. Then he went to Damascus and he stayed there in the Umayyad Mosque. Then he went to Jerusalem and he remained above the Golden Gate. For those who've been to Jerusalem, there's a Golden Gate, which you're not allowed to go to right now. But he stayed on top of that in a room or somewhere. And this is where he wrote much of his book called the Ihya Ulum al-Din. This tells us that this world is if you understand that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is who you need to be connected to, then it tells you that losing any part of this world doesn't make too much of a difference anymore. His Ihya Ulum al-Din addresses the different levels of society in a clear way to try to connect them with their creator. He addresses the scholars and he criticizes them. He addresses the leaders and he tells them what's wrong. He addresses the business people. He addresses just the worshippers. He addresses every single level of society, telling them what the problem is. What we understand from his, from his life that in 550, 505, uh, sorry, 55 years to have produced what he did, there's no university in the world who I think hasn't done some kind of study on Imam Ghazali in the East or the West. Even when I was doing my masters, we had to write an article on Imam Ghazali as to whether his theological contributions were more profound or his spiritual contributions. And this was in Soas. So they're all studying him today because he was, they, they called him the proof of Islam. This tells us that age is only an excuse for Allah. Divine enablement and tawfiq is everything. So it doesn't matter how old you are, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can accept you for his faith. Following him is the great Hanbali jurist, Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jilani. Again, he is one of the finest and most renowned mystics of all time. Ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, used to praise him abundantly. He arrived in the metropolis of Baghdad after Ghazali's departure. And he took up the task of filling the hearts of thousands with the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why you had the rulers, the governors, all sitting in his gathering. You had people, hundreds of people literally nearly every day doing tawbah at his hands, repenting on his hands, people coming into the faith, subhanallah. Then after his departure, Baghdad produces Abul Faraj, Abdul Rahman, Ibn al-Jawzi, who I alluded to earlier. Another person who have, I felt great affinity with, a scholar par excellence, for whom there was no limit, the sky is no limit. For him, he went beyond that and I'll tell you why. And a, a model of high ambition, if you are feeling depressed, if you are feeling lazy, if you feel that you have no inspiration to do anything, then read the story of Ibn al-Jawzi. And he will inspire you. He will tell you what you should be doing. He will motivate you. 
he, he was a model of high ambition, time management, and effective execution of goals. He had an insatiable appetite for consuming a diverse range of sciences. He wanted to be a master of all and a jack of none. This is what he said. I want to be a master of all and a jack of none. In those days, you could do that. Today, it's impossible because sciences have really proliferated and become very spe specified. In those days, the main sciences of the world, you could master all of them. That's why you had polymaths in those days that were masters of all various sciences. And, he, and this is Ibn al-Jawzi. He says in his Sayyid al-Khatir, which is called Captured Thoughts, the way I look at it, it's like a Facebook, an early Facebook, but with really profound posts that are really, really beneficial. Not just telling people that these sho shoes look really nice, right? Or this is what I had for breakfast, or whatever else you tell people. You know, subhanAllah, we got some people on Twitter who have about 50 followers, but they've got 50,000 posts. Allahu Akbar, where do they get the time to do this, right? And then the other thing is that, you know, if you want to know who a person is, read his Twitter profile, his or her Twitter profile, to see what really matters for them. Because in the limited amount of words that they have, they can only put so much. So see what they've chosen. That's what matters to people most. We should look at our own Twitter profiles to see what, what we are, how we define ourselves. On Facebook, you could write million, you know, thousands of words, but on Twitter, you can't. So... It reveals the challenges many scholars face, how one works through them, and above all, the necessary thought process essential for competency. That's what Ibn al-Jawzi dealt with. Then after that, just to move on very quickly, at a time of great political turmoil, amid the crusader assaults, assaults in the Holy Lands, suddenly there appears Nuruddin Zangi and Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. Their story, very lengthy indeed, teaches us fortitude and resilience in our faith, the firmness of a warrior in the path of Allah, and the etiquette with one's enemies. These are some other si uh, lessons we can draw from them. Do you know that Richard the Lionheart, who was a foe uh, fighting against Salahuddin, Richard became sick. Salahuddin is fighting against him, but because he became sick, he sent him precious ice, precious ice. To his enemy, subhanAllah. This is in stark contrast to the daily, the, prop, the, the current day propaganda we hear from the so-called terrorists, uh, so-called jihadists, who take a small piece of land in Iraq or wherever, and then the first thing they want to do is cut people's hands off. The first thing. They don't want to educate, they don't want to do anything. They want, the first thing they want to do is start whipping people. Come on, that's Sharia as well. But that's not the only Sharia there is there. And they give a bad name to Islam throughout the world immediately. Moving on from that to the fi fi final one is the Sultan of Scholars. Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam. Just to sum him up, he is one of those scholars who was so bold and fearless. He would go and say whatever he wanted to the ruling and the stories about him are amazing. Amazing, absolutely amazing. But one thing about him, there were other scholars who were, had no fear. But one thing about Izzuddin ibn Abdis Salam is that he got away with it. He said what he did and he managed to go away with it, get away with it. Once he said something and the king of Egypt, the ruler of Egypt got a bit unhappy with him. The next day, somebody comes to the ruler of Egypt and he says, is your main scholar Izzuddin is leaving Egypt and the people are following him out. Go, quickly bring him back. Can you imagine it? This is his power. Regardless of all of that, finally, we learn about the Tartars who swept through the Muslim lands, literally laying waste to everything. 
Only, subhanallah, when you look at the story of the Tartus, even the great Muslim biographers, like Ibn al-Athir and others, they say that our pens shake to write this history. These people, they went through the lands, leaving just a few people alive, if they were lucky, just erasing everything. However, just decades later, these same people who tore down Baghdad, killed about a million Muslims in Baghdad alone, the Muslim headquarters, and killed the Khalif, rolled him up in a rug and beat him to death. These same people later end up embracing the very same faith that they had set out to annihilate. This demonstrates the power of Islam to sweep even its archest enemies out of disbelief into faith and lead them eventually to add to Islam's divine splendor. So in closing, I will let you read the book because this is the only time that I have to cover this. Just in closing, what do we do? One thing that is very important is that we need to ask Allah for tawfiq. Oh Allah, accept us for something. Junaid Jamshed that Sheikh Yasir just mentioned, he was a singer. Allah gave him tawfiq to come out of it. One of the most celebrated singers and pop stars of Pakistan. Comes out of it, becomes religious. Dies on a religious journey. He's a shaheed because he dies in a plane crash and he dies in the path of Allah. And one hadith that comes to mind is, somebody asked the Prophet it's a Musnad Ahmad hadith. The Prophet said, May yuridillahu bihi khayran istamalahu. Whoever Allah intends good with, he will use him. The Sahaba, they asked, what do you mean by istamalahu? What do you mean by he will use him? And the Prophet said, يُوَفِّقُهُ لِعَمَلٍ صَالِحٍ قَبْلَ مَوْتِهِ يَرْضَى عَنْهُ النَّاسِ Allah will give him tawfiq to do something before his death by which the people around him will be satisfied with him. He will please them, they will make dua for him. And this, I believe, were all of these saviors. And I believe every single one of us, the housewives included, the people who are driving taxis included, whatever you may be doing, whatever you may think about yourself, ask Allah. Oh Allah, accept me for the service of my deen. Whether that be assisting somebody, helping humanity, or on an intellectual level, on some other level, doing something other, Allah knows. We have to have the fervor. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant us the ability to take this ummah forward in its great glory. Uh, the point of a lecture is to encourage people to act, to get further, an inspiration, an encouragement, persuasion, the next step is to actually start learning seriously, to read books, to take on a subject of Islam and to understand all the subjects of Islam, at least at their basic level, so that we can become more aware of what our deen wants from us. Uh, and that's why we started uh, Rayyan courses, so that uh, you can actually take organized lectures uh, on demand whenever you have free time, especially, for example, the Islamic Essentials uh, course that we have on there, the Islamic Essentials Certificate, which you take 20 short modules and at the end of that inshallah you will have gotten the, the basics of uh, most of the most important topics in Islam and you'll feel a lot more confident. You don't have to leave lectures behind, you can continue to, leave, uh, you know, to listen to lectures but you need to have this more sustained study as well. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.